Hello, pediatric commuters. Welcome to the new episode of the podcast that accompanies you on your journey from home to work and back. Thank you for all your constructive feedback. I'm really glad that you are enjoying this project. Today, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Nash, a neonatology consultant at Birmingham Women's Hospital. We are discussing about persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. It is a condition that we do not see very often unless we work in a tertiary neonatal hospital. But when we do see it, we need to be prepared. I have to mention that this podcast expresses the views of the host and guests and that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. One doctor may have a different way of doing things from another. Please double check your local and national guidelines before treating any patients with this condition. The podcast is not sponsored by any drug or device companies. Have a safe commute! Hello, welcome back. Today we are joined by Dr. Matthew Nash from the Birmingham Women's Hospital and we will discuss about PPHN. The reason why we chose this topic is because a few months ago, maybe six months ago, I attended one of the simulation courses run here at the Women's Hospital and it was amazing. Not only the simulation bit, by the way, the course is called Shine. And as I said, not the simula- not only the simulation bit, but also the workshop that we had on both on CFAM and on PPHN. It really changed my perspective of way of way I manage the P- uh, I manage PPHN. Welcome, Dr. Nash. Thanks for accepting to um, be our guest in this podcast. Let's start with what's the classical presentation of a child of an infant with PPHN. Well, thank you for asking me to talk, and thank you very much for the plug for our our, our simulation course. Um, so the classical presentation for persistent pulmonary hypertension newborn can be either related to the underlying pathology um, or can present with simply failed pulse ox tests, low saturations or the cyanotic baby. The common causes of pulmonary hypertension, so some can be idiopathic, so approximately 10%, others can be triggered by sepsis, meconium aspiration syndrome, underlying lung pathology such as congenital diaphragmatic hernias. For people that don't deal with PPHN quite often, and I know we have listeners from all different fields, shall we just explain what is PPHN? In utero, the pulmonary vascular resistance is high, and this is because there's uh, babies don't need their lungs when they're in utero, um, and the relative hypoxemia causes pulmonary vasoconstriction, arterial um, constriction. When babies are born, various changes happen related to taking the, the first breath, um, oxygenating the blood, which will reduce the pulmonary vascular resistance. In PPHN, essentially it's persistent or fetal circulation, and the, the resistance is, is high, therefore uh, it's, it's more difficult to pump blood around the lungs and pick up oxygen and, and, and give off carbon dioxide. If we admit a baby on the unit, straight from the delivery room, we might think about PPHN mm. pretty soon. But if we have a baby on the postnatal ward that just failed a pulse oximetry test, when should we think about PPHN? We usually admit them and we put them on a bit of high flow or CPAP, depending where we are. Mm. When shall we start thinking, "Mm, could this be PPHN? Well, it's a clinical presentation, so there would be a hypoxic baby usually they have a pre and postdoctoral difference so because of the shunting that occurs due to the high pulmonary pressures um, you would get reverse of the shunting so it's from right to left um, across the, 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 the ductus arteriosus and across the form of Navali as well. There would usually be a pre and postdoctoral difference of at least kind of 
three to five percent. Some of these babies can be confused for cardiac. Now, if you give oxygen to a baby with cardiac disease, then the saturations won't improve. Um, but if you give oxygen to a baby with pulmonary hypertension, then there will be some improvement with the oxygenation. You're going to pick up these babies either because they are clinically symptomatic or they're going to have hypoxia detected on the pulse oximetry test if that is done. Um, more and more units are now using that as a screening tool for cardiac disease, but it can also pick up diseases such as pulmonary hypertension and, and sepsis and, and other such conditions. I know you see a lot of congenital diaphragmatic hernia here at the mm. women's, and I understand that children with this pathology are at higher risk of developing PPHN. Do we manage it like all the other types of all the other PPHNs in sort of babies that don't have any problems. Yeah. So there's two problems that congenital diaphragmatic hernia babies have. One is pulmonary hypoplasia. Now we can't do anything about that and either that the lungs are developed sufficient to be able to support life or they're not. The other problem they have is significant pulmonary hypertension and that's what treatment is geared towards. And yes it is it is the, the similar management. Now, if you know you've got a baby with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, you're going to be prepared and treat very aggressively right from the start. But essentially, the principles of treatment are, are, are the same. Okay. Talking about principles of treatment, let's say we admitted this baby from the postnatal ward, failed the pulse ox, we've been called by the midwifery assistant or by the midwife herself, telling us the baby failed the pulse ox, can you please see this baby? And the baby looks like... 153 babies that we see per night with a bit of respiratory distress and SATs of let's say 93%. The first thing that we do is consider sepsis and I guess mm. this is what you recommend just start them on antibiotics and do a chest yeah. x-ray. <clears throat> what do you do next in terms of helping them with their breathing? So certainly infection is very important to treat uh, or exclude so yes antibiotics would be one of the first things. Um, but what you want to do is treat the hypoxia. So hypoxia will drive the pulmonary hypertension. So it causes um, vasoconstriction. So you want to try and, or pulmonary vasoconstriction, so you want to try and reverse that. So give them oxygen. In turn babies, especially if there's a little bit of grunting, a bit of respiratory distress, one way of doing that very effectively is using high flow. So term babies don't like CPAP so much, increased risk of pneumothoraces, um, but high flow is very well tolerated. So you give them as much options as they need. Okay. If the baby's saturations go back to go up to 100%, are we happy? Hmm. And we just observe the baby? So if, if there's evidence of pulmonary hypertension that responds just to oxygen, that's all you need to give. And often, a lot of these babies that we admit with the possible pulmonary hypertension will resolve over 12, 24 hours just with oxygen and maintaining um, saturations in the, the kind of um, mid to high 90s. If the saturations do not improve, the baby sats are still 86% and we're going up and up and up with the oxygen requirement, what do we do next? So clearly we need to escalate, and we need to escalate fairly rapidly. And actually rapid and aggressive treatment is important to stop the spiral of pulmonary hypertension because it can get worse and worse. And our ultimate aim is to reverse the pulmonary hypertension and avoid escalating to ECMO, which is extracorporeal membranous oxygenation, which is the last resort for, for treatment in these babies. So really we need to address hypoxia um, and overcome the pulmonary vascular um, resistance and the, the arterial constriction. So 
if we're needing 100% oxygen and we're not maintaining SATs, then this baby needs to be intubated, needs to be ventilated, needs to have lines put in, um, and the consideration of the use of nitric oxide and making sure that the blood pressure is optimal. And quite often we need to use suprasystemic blood pressure. Um, so in a term baby, we would normally be happy with a, with a mean blood pressure of 40 to 45. We might be wanting to push that up to 50 or 55 to overcome the, 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 the pulmonary vascular resistance. Is there a specific inotrope that we should start or a specific combination of inotropes that we should start or shall we just do what our local guidelines say? Use what your local guidelines use. So our standard inotropes of choice are dopamine and dibutamine. We often have discussions whether we should go for adrenaline and noradrenaline um, and also the use of milnarone um, which can you know, kind of help with offloading the heart as well as part of the inotropic management. Do we start... Like we normally start at five and five and then assess and wait for a response or do we go a bit fast? So we are often more cautious in babies with inotropic need because most of them are most of our, our patients are, are preterm and they're at risk of, of IVHs. Term babies that risk isn't there so much at all. So um ideally you'd start kind of at twenty and twenty and then wean down from there. If you start at the, the highest doses of, of your inotropic guidelines and assess the response and if you're able to wean rather than working way up because you want to be acting quickly and trying to overcome um, the, the, the pulmonary hypertension as quickly as you can. Working on a tertiary neonatal unit, I've seen babies being transferred from sort of secondary level units or from um, other places also have received hydrocortisone and a fluid bolus before transfer. Is this sort of the right yeah, thing to do? Yeah, it's very important to make sure these babies are well filled. So giving them some crystallized and normal serum bolus, if there's a history of blood loss of delivery, of course you want to replace that with, um, with packed red cells. And hydrocortisone is a very effective inotrope in, in, in babies. It takes some time to work, so rather than starting low with the inotropes and working up, I would be starting at 20 to 20 dopamine to butamine because that's our guideline. And I would also start some hydrocortisone at that point as well because it, it takes a good half an hour to, to see any effect. Um, you can then decide whether you want to carry on giving hydrocortisone and whether actually you manage without. But I would, I would give it early. I know that babies are being transferred from other units to tertiary units. They are usually they have a lot of morphine on board and a lot of paralyzing agents like mm. rocuronium on board. If we work in a tertiary neonatal unit, do we need to give that or it just depends what the baby does? So that's a really interesting question. So morphine, yes. So if you've got a ventilated term baby, it's not comfortable. And actually, one, made, one important aspect of treating these babies is to keep them as comfortable as possible. So that includes um, containment, low light levels, low noise levels, and not prodding and poking them any more than we really have. So morphine is very, very important to ensure these babies are as comfortable as possible. Now, our current guideline recommends to start rocuronium or muscle relaxant straight away. Now, there is evidence that this will affect babies neurodevelopmental outcome and therefore we're looking at whether this should be done as a matter of routine or not. So from the diaphragmatic hernia point of view the European consensus guideline doesn't recommend routine use of, of muscle relaxant but certainly it should be started early if you're struggling to oxygenate. So yes muscle relaxant 
um, in a level one or level two unit, I would be saying you need to start some morphine and some muscle relaxant quickly, um, take over this baby's breathing, keep them as comfortable as possible, and you can optimize oxygenation and ventilation with a muscle relaxed baby, and they're then settled and sorted for transfer. In a tertiary unit, level three units, early use of muscle relaxant if your interventions don't improve oxygenation, but actually if your oxygenation with nitric and inotropic support and morphine helps, then it, it, it doesn't have to be routine, but certainly something you should be considering early. When should we start thinking about nitric? Let's say we've done all the routine, the yeah. baby's ventilated, is in oxygen, we've put all the lines in, we started antibiotics, we started all the inotropes. When do we think about nitric? So nitric is a very effective, selective pulmonary vasodilator. And there are guidelines in the network as to when to start nitric, and that's doing calculation called oxygenation index. And once that is reaching towards 20, then nitric should certainly be, um, be considered and trialled. If it works, it usually works very, very quickly. The other option is if you're struggling to oxygenate and the baby's becoming more unwell, even if the oxygenation index isn't reaching that threshold of 20, then I personally would start it earlier to see whether it has any benefit or not. There are some units that are very strict with their use of nitric and will say only once it reaches an oxygenation index of 20 should we be using it. But actually, clinical course, you can see that the uh, projection of, of how this baby's progressing as to whether you want to start it a bit earlier or not. Basically, the oxygenation index is telling us how much we are giving the baby, how much effort we are putting in, and how yeah. much the baby is giving us back. This is what I understand from the yeah. oxygenation index. So it's it's a, it's an equation which looks at the the, the the pressure, the mean airway pressure that you're needing to deliver to that baby, and the amount of oxygen that you're needing to give, and then it gives you a number. How much you need to give to oxygenate that baby? Which one's worse, a high number or a low number? A of high the oxygen? number. A high number. Okay. If we have an oxygenation index of 20, we think about nitric, and then we keep keep on calculating it every time we do a gas or sort of every that often. When do we start thinking about the next step, which is ECMO? So the advice is generally an oxygenation index of 40 as a number, but actually, again, it's looking at the trend of, of, of the baby. If you're starting off an oxygenation index of, of 20 or 30 and isn't improving despite what you're doing, early discussions with your local ECMO centre would be um, beneficial because not only it's it's an indication to start ECMO, you've also got the baby get the baby over into the unit um, that needs it. So it may be that they want that baby over with them so they can start it if they need to um, or they might be happy to sit tight and, and wait and see. Now it might be you start off an oxygenation index of 30 or 40 but actually the, the treatment that you give does show some improvement in which case you can you can hold off but if you're worried and it's getting worse then I would I recommend an early discussion to at least involve the ECMO team in decision making early rather than later. Do you, I know you do a lot of follow-up clinics, do you see babies that come back after being on ECMO, how is their sort of neurodevelopmental outcome? Um, do they have any problems afterwards because they were on ECMO? So it's difficult to know whether any neurodevelopmental disability or delay is associated with ECMO or whether it's associated with the hypoxia um, from the, the pulmonary hypertension that meant that they needed to go for ECMO. There are risks associated with it, they're very large 
uh, catheters that need to, need to be inserted and the whole circuit needs to be anticoagulated. So there is a high risk of bleeds. So they could be you know, anywhere, including interventricular or intracranial hemorrhages. Long-term follow-up, the babies that we see can be varied because they, it might be related to underlying pathology, it could be related to the ECMO, it could be related to the, it's mainly related to the hypoxia if there are any issues um, that's led to them need the ECMO. Okay. Now, just to summarise, we pick these babies from the postnatal ward or straight from the delivery room. We act quickly. Yeah. And uh, top things with oxygen. Yes, so you need to oxygenate them and give them as much oxygen as they need. Now, we used to give 100% oxygen, but actually 100% oxygen results in release of free radicals, and that in itself can potentially make the vasoconstriction worse and increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. Also, if you're needing nitric and you're using a lot of oxygen, actually nitric works better at slightly lower oxygen levels. So if you've got sats and saturations at 90 to 95%, your nitric is going to be more effective. So we shouldn't be targeting saturations of 100%. And if we can get away with using a little bit less oxygen than 100%, then that is more beneficial. But you need to balance that against how much oxygen you need. If you need 100% oxygen, you need 100% oxygen. But if you can get away with even if it's 90%, then potentially there's there's um, reduction in, in risk there. But yes, it's act fast, correct hypoxia, um, optimize blood pressure, um, give uh, sedation and muscle relaxants if, if necessary, get some nitric on board, um, and then assess the trends as to what's going on using oxygenation index, and have discussions with either your local tertiary unit or the ECMO centre kind of early rather than later. I guess I should have started with something else. I should have started with shout for help if you're a trainee call your consultant yes would you be happy to be called at any point? i'm always happy to be called <laughs> at any time of day or night especially if you've got a baby who can't oxygenate then then the consultant needs to be involved and if it's in level one or level two unit a baby that you're struggling to oxygenate is a time critical transfer and the transport team certainly in our region will will carry nitric and they can arrive and, and start nitric and, and and help with the management and you know we provide a, an advice service as well. So certainly involve your consultant, involve the transport team if appropriate, um, and act quickly. Excellent. Let's just hope we don't have too many of them in level two or level one units. I think this episode was really, really useful. I learned a lot by talking um, to you about PPHN, and I hope our listeners will learn a lot as well. Please check your local guidelines because I'm sure you will have one regarding PPHN. If not, you can always go on the sort of transport team website. Our local one is called NTS, kids working alongside with NTS. And I'm sure you'll find a lot of information there. Thank you, Dr. Nash. Thank you for accepting to be here with us. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for staying with us until the end. I'm looking forward to hear any feedback from you. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know if you have any ideas of themes that could be discussed in the next episodes. If you enjoyed it, take a few minutes to rate us on your podcast app. Have a lovely day!